When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're looking at boundaries and also looking at the judgment of God, God preserving God's people. Whenever we deal with a topic of violence done by God in the Bible, um, we must remember that um, there is an unfolding of God's revelation. Um, and certainly the judgment of God that falls on Korah and his followers and their families as they are swallowed up by the earth um, is part of that mystery of why God does this kind of judgment. Certainly part of the issue is that God is attempting to limit the destructive force of Korah. Korah is a destructive force. He is going to destroy the people of God. So by destroying Korah, God is limiting the destructive abilities of someone that is doing evil. Um, But ultimately, we wonder about the children and those who are destroyed, the innocent victims of this judgment. And that is a big question, and it's one that Christians have wrestled with for a long time, and the people of God and Job and others have wrestled with. Um, And ultimately, um, that question of why do people suffer unjustly on this planet? Um, All of us are included in that. Why? Um, The answer that God gives is ultimately the person of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, God becomes one of us and experiences what it's like to be human, to be helpless, to suffer on this planet. And ultimately, the death as, as a crucified victim, Jesus, in his crucified death, in his death, um, we see this answer to this question. We see that the answer of God is his son hanging on a tree, suffering for us. Um, suffering with us, and ultimately God experiencing what it is like to suffer. Um, And then to rise from the dead, to be vindicated in that, that is the answer to all of these questions about human suffering. It is one that we ponder both through word, thought, and visual exploration and music as well. Um, It is a big one. It is the big question of human existence. And we're going to touch on that today, but remembering that um, ultimately Jesus is the answer to this big question. The text that Barbara read, um, number 16, we have this dramatic scene. um, The scene of the earth opening and swallowing people whole. It's something that uh, we might imagine in our nightmares. We might dream. We might see in a movie. Uh, When I was a little child, my parents uh, uh, took in a family to live with us who um, had gone through some transitions and um, an instability and needed a place to live. And... um, my Aunt Janet, she's now, I, we always called her Aunt Janet, and I still know her to this day as Aunt Janet. Um, Aunt Janet was originally from Peru, and she would tell me the story about when there was an earthquake in Peru, 
as a child and she had to jump across a crack in the ground that had opened up and she had to leap to safety across this crack in the ground. And I don't know how big it was. I, I imagined it being, you know, 10 feet across. It probably wasn't that big if she was able to jump it. But um, that image is always stuck in my mind. And um, I'm thankful for Janet and her two kids that lived with us during those years of my childhood. Um, but I think about that scene of the earth opening up, the, the mysteries of the earth, what's down there is really unknown for most of, um, most of what we know about the, the earth and what's under the thin layer of topsoil that keeps us all alive. We can drill down with oil rigs. I grew up hearing a story about, it's always Soviet uh, scientists, you know, um, these stories that come out, sort of like a Stranger Things, which I haven't ever seen the whole thing, but uh, sort of reminded me of Stranger Things, the way that um, digging down into the earth brings out strange things. But uh, hearing a sermon that was supposed to scare us about hell as a child, and that was that Soviet scientists had dug down into the earth and they had dug so deep that they did sound recordings and they could hear people screaming and moaning because they had reached all the way to hell and they had opened up a uh, portal to hell accidentally and you could hear the recordings down there. And I don't know if that was a campfire story that worked its way into a sermon or something, but there is some sort of uh, hole uh, in the ground, somewhere in Siberia, where they dug too deep and stuff came out. Um, I think that is actually a true story. But we know that when people fall into the earth, there's no coming back. In fact, this is a metaphor for the grave, for Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave or hell. And here these um, these dissidents, these people who are rebelling against Moses and Aaron, have uh, risen up. Korah is the main, um, the main antagonist. Um, before Barbara read, there is a, uh, a section about incense, this sort of test that Moses and Aaron put to, the, to, the Korah, to Korah and his followers. Um, put incense on it, and each one of you take your censer, your incense thurible or censer, uh, and present your censer before the Lord, 250 censers, and also Aaron with his censer. So each man took his censer, and they put fire in the censer and laid incense on them, and they stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this was the assembly that God called for all of them. Each one had an incense censer. These are, um, are part of the um, tribe of Levi, they are the Kohathites. They are responsible for maintaining the tabernacle and taking it down and setting it up. Uh, and so this is an inter-tribal conflict. Um, and the complaint is that you've taken us out here into the desert to die. They were never going to make it to the promised land. Remember the disappointment of the 12 spies, the 10 spies uh, from earlier times. And so... Um, they, are, they want to rebel, and they want to march in to the promised land themselves without Moses. And so this assembly is called. 
before the tent of meeting. Everybody with their little incense. It must have smelled wonderful, all that frankincense and myrrh going up there. 250 thuribles, sort of an Anglo-Catholic dream and vision. Boy, all that incense flowing up into the air. What a wonderful thing. Well, it's not going to be such a wonderful day for everybody. The Lord says, separate yourselves from this congregation so that I may consume you. Um, And Moses and Aaron, in their typical fashion, whenever God says he's going to hurt people, Moses and Aaron plead for plead for them. Um, Even these guys who are rebelling, even these guys who are trying to get rid of Moses, which I guess means to kill him or leave him behind. um, They say, God, shall one person sin? You know, will will that make you angry at all of us if one person does the sin? Um, And then the Lord says, doesn't answer him, but says, you need to get further away, not just from these people, but you need to get away from their tents as well. They must have all camped in the same place. Um, don't touch any, stu- any of their stuff. So they do that. They separate themselves from, um, from, the, from Korah and his followers. And then it says the ground under them split apart. Um, and all of their stuff, all of their tents, and all of them are swallowed up in the earth. And then the earth closes over them, and they perish in the midst of the assembly. Um, and all of Israel notices, obviously, they would notice this, and they say, are you going to do this to us too? Is the earth going to swallow us too? Um and that's when the fire comes out and burns up the 250 of the rebels who are burning the incense. Um, this um, remarkable and cataclysmic opening of the ground, consuming of them, eating them alive, as it will, the earth eats them alive, is reminiscent, echoing of the Red Sea deliverance. Remember, the Red Sea opens up. And Pharaoh's army goes into it, and then it closes over them. Um, the power that God has over nature is being demonstrated. The threat to Moses is a threat to God's people. God has a specific plan for Moses to follow uh, that Moses must follow. He's got to wander in the wilderness for 40 years with these people as they are forged into a nation. And anyone who is trying to thwart that plan is going to reap the judgment of God. This isn't so much a warning for those of us who worry about getting swallowed up in the ground, although maybe it could be, but a a reminder that God takes care of us on the path that we are going. When we are on the path that God has called us to, a path of love, a path of loving one's neighbor as ourselves, the path of worshiping God in spirit, and in truth, when, God, when we have been called to that, God will stop at nothing to keep that program going for us, uh, even if it means swallowing those who seek to do us harm. God protects his followers. God protects his people, his children. Um, and this is a reminder that we are not alone in this life. 
that God is watching, God is with us. The way God protects us is uh, just as varied as the way God protected God's people there in the desert. Sometimes the earth opens and swallows the enemies up. Sometimes the sea opens and swallows them up. Sometimes there's other provisions that are made and protection that is offered. It's always different with God. We never see God doing the exact same thing twice. What we do see, though, is this overwhelming protection. God will protect God's people. God will protect these who are following him. Um, And sometimes we have to get away from those who are being swallowed up. Um, And this is part of the hard um, part of life. We talk a lot about boundaries in our society. Boundaries are a concept invented by uh, the infamous focus on the family think tank. Um, Most people uh, don't know that, that it's a... um, concept that comes from a place that you might not trust a lot of their other um, pseudo-psychological advice, Uh, but it's a concept that's caught on in America, for sure, that we can speak the word boundaries and kind of everybody knows what we're talking about. I think it it, um, really echoes the human need for this, what is mentioned in this passage is that sometimes um, we must step aside and let the judgment of God fall. Um, This doesn't mean we don't have compassion, that we don't care. What it means, though, is that we follow God when God says to step aside. Separate yourselves from this congregation so that I may consume them in a moment. Um, God is working God's plan in everybody's life, not just ours, but everybody else's too. And sometimes we can thwart that plan by being a little bit too close. Um, And so this concept of boundaries is certainly a good one in that it allows people to define what they can do and won't do and will do. Um, But I think without listening to the voice of God, um, boundaries just become another way for us to um, to uh, another. They can become another way for uh, our self-indulgence to flourish. Um, And and that's not anything that I've seen or not seen or experienced or not experienced or and I'm not certainly critiquing anyone's exercising of boundaries in their life. But I do think if we are going to use boundaries and and use that language to describe our self-definition and our definition of what we will do and what we won't do, we ought to listen to the voice of God in that. What is God calling us to do? Sometimes God calls us to uh, get closer to people even when we don't really want to. And sometimes God calls us to step back from people that we may want to be closer to. Um, But listening to the voice of God is what Moses and Aaron are doing in this story. And it's something that we should always do too. So when you find yourself in need of a boundary, um, when you feel your own personhood being absorbed into someone or some place else's, some institution, some other person, um, and you feel that need for boundaries, and you know that that needs to happen, um, pray about it. Ask God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Um, where's, where should the lines be drawn? Should I step back or step forward or to the side? Um, those are always good questions to ask God, because God is asking those questions as well. God is the one calling Moses and Aaron to separate themselves, to draw this line, um, to step aside and let the judgment of God do its work. 
um, because ultimately uh, that is God is taking care of God's people and God will take care of us, whether we draw our boundary lines uh, accurately or inaccurately. Um, some of us are better at that than others, for sure. Um, whether, whether that happens or not, to know that God is with us, God is watching, and God is always speaking and working and listening to what we need and giving us what we need. Amen. Page 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And we'll use the person from the calendar from June 19th, Adelaide Teague Case, teacher, died in 1948. Adelaide Case was born in St. Louis, Missouri on January 10th, 1887, but her family soon moved to New York City. She received her undergrad education at Bryn Mawr College, where I used to work at a ski shop right next door to that, and her graduate degree from Columbia, which was originally an Episcopal University in New York City. By the time she had finished her doctorate, a position had opened for her at the Teachers College at Columbia, where she rose to status of full professor and head of the Department of Religious Education. She is remembered for advocating a child-centered rather than teacher-centered approach to education. Um, many of the current educational concepts that we have today are are actually from a long time ago. Um, they just sort of get buried over time and then re-resurrected. Um, thankful for them. In 1941, with, when her professional accomplishments were at her height, their height, the Episcopal Theological School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was able to convince her to leave her distinguished and comfortable, comfortable position at Columbia, where she was appointed to be professor of Christian education at ETS in Cambridge. Although other women had taught occasional courses in the seminaries of the church, Case was the first professor to take her place as a full-time faculty member at the rank of professor. Case identified with a liberal Catholic tradition in Anglicanism. Some of you know the different um, quadrants of Anglicanism. There is the, can anyone name all four quadrants of Anglicanism? 
for me, for us. See if I can do it. Um, quadrant one is broad church or liberal Catholic. Um, that is probably most notable. Um, C.S. Lewis would be an example of that, or um, even uh, John, John Spong and others who, uh, through engagement with uh, progressive culture, have attempted to make the truths of Christianity palatable or acceptable to a uh, largely secular audience, people that don't go to church and tr- trying to do that. Um, the next quadrant is evangelical. Um, in America, there aren't many examples of evangelical Anglicans, but in England, there are many. Nicky Gumbel, the inventor of the Alpha program, probably the most notable evangelical in the Church of England and Anglicanism today, but um, used to be more of a part of our tradition. Um, many of them left in the um, in the schism that we had in the 2000s over the ordination of Bishop Gene Robinson. Um, but there's still some around. Uh, the next one is Anglo-Catholic. Um, Anglo-Catholicism is smells and bells, incense swinging around and uh, candles and uh, bowing and those sorts of things, more embodied uh, religion. Anglo-Catholic, which traces its way back to the movement the Oxford movement in the late 1800s in America and in England and other places as well. And then the fourth, I can't think of the fourth. Oh, charismatic. Um, The charismatic quadrant, which is quite quite small, um, but still around in the Episcopal Church, uh, seeking to recover the ecstatic uh, nature of the Christian faith, often through praise and worship music and speaking in tongues and things like that, that quadrant is still around um, in our Episcopal Church, and we have a lot to learn from them. But she was part of the liberal uh, wing of Christianity um, and wrote a book, her first book, Liberal Christianity and Religious Education, which she emphasized teaching children to engage in reasonable inquiry into their faith. The word liberal is one of those words that gets thrown around in a lot of different ways today. Um, It's probably lost most of its meaning. But at this time, it meant someone who um, was really into the liberal arts, which was like Shakespeare and stuff like that. Um, And using those tools of intellectual inquiry, um, using them to examine the Christian faith and relate the Christian faith to the larger world of literature and scholarship of that time. Case was also active in the Religious Education Association, the Episcopal Pacifist Fellowship, and the Women's Auxiliary of the Episcopal Church. 1946 to 48, she served on the National Council of the Episcopal Church. She was a proponent of women's ordination and a frequent preacher in the chapel at ETS. She taught at ETS until her death, June 19, 1948, in Boston. Um, So we can see even before women's ordination, there were movements for women preachers, women to preach and teach in the Episcopal Church that led the way for the ordination of the Philadelphia 11 um, in the 1970s. Students and faculty colleagues remember her contagious faith in Christ, her deep sense of humanity, 
and her seemingly boundless compassion. Although she carried herself with grace and style, Case had struggled with health problems her entire life, and those who knew her testified to the fact that in spite of those challenges, she was spirited, energetic, and engaged with the life of the community there at Episcopal Theological School. She was, it was often said of her that she was a true believer in Christ and that one saw Christ living in and through her. Case believed that the point of practicing the Christian faith was to make a difference in the world. As an advocate for peace, she believed that Christianity had a special vocation to call people into transformed, reconciled relationships for the sake of the wholeness of the human family. She is said to have discovered these things not in theology or educational theory, but in a life of common prayer and faithful Eucharistic practice, which is, I hope, where we all discover what Christianity is all about, not so much in all of our speaking and studying, but in just the as the rhythms of prayer soak into our lives, we realize we see the world differently through the eyes of faith as, um, as she did, Adelaide Case. Ever-living God, who raised up your servant, Adelaide Case, whose compassion and commitment to peace inspired generations of students, grant that we, following her example, may serve you in our vocations, laboring for your reign of peace, through the companionship of Jesus Christ, your saving word, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. We could pray a colic for mission. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant the people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.